Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 131. And today I have a very special double act for you, um, which is featuring Dr. Alan McCubbin and Dr. Ollie Jay. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Doing well, thank you. There you go. And you answered both perfectly in a simultaneous (laughs) fashion. so th- th- I actually tweeted this yesterday because I just thought that this was a strangely ironic topic for us to get into because yesterday, my time, um, this morning, your time, which adds to the confusion that hopefully won't, uh, won't have our heads exploding by the end of this podcast. But um, yesterday was a miserable day. It was freezing cold. It was raining. But there I was reading about uh, your um, paper that you guys have played a major role in, which is the Sports Dietitian Australia position statement on nutrition for exercise in hot environments. And I am absolutely not existing in a hot environment today. So um, before we get into why I felt, and strangely ironically so, that I wanted to get into this topic with you guys, Let's start off with a bit of background, uh, starting with you, Alan. If you could tell us uh, who you are and, and what you're up to, please. Yeah, sure. So I'm a, an accredited sports dietitian, which is the, uh, the term we use in Australia. So we don't have RDs. We have accredited practicing dietitians and accredited sports dietitians. Um, so I guess I'm a practitioner first and foremost. been working as such for about 15 years now, um, but sort of developed a, a passion for research early on. Um, sort of always wanted to get into that space and did a marathon to Saab case study as a private practitioner and then from there you know went on and and moved into academia so I've been at Monash University for for almost five years now did PhD there and um, doing some postdoc work there continuing in the the area of research that I've been mainly doing which is um, mostly around hydration and particularly sodium um, and endurance and ultra endurance athletes and certainly my private practice is, is mostly the, the endurance and particularly the ultra endurance guys as well and then because I'm at Monash with Ricardo Costa who I know you know well from previous podcast yeah. um, I get sort of roped into some of the, the gastrointestinal kind of research as well. Roped in being the proverbial term I guess. <laughs> yes yes had a few little side projects there along the way which has been fun. No, brilliant. Well, you've mentioned a few things that I'm going to get back into in a minute. So, Ollie, your turn. Tell us about yourself. What, what are you doing and what are you up to? All right. So, um, uh, so I'm an associate professor at the University of Sydney. So I'm in the Faculty of Medicine and Health. I'm almost the, also the um, director of the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory, which is a research team that I lead out of the University of Sydney. We have three postdocs and uh, I think eight PhD students at the last count. So we conduct research looking into um, human resilience and survivability, but also performance in predominantly hot environments. So we have a public health arm to our research that looks at the way in which the most vulnerable people can survive their way through extreme heat events. Uh, But on the flip side, we also look at the opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, So things like uh, elite athletes and examining how we can ensure their optimal performance, but also ensure their optimal safety when they're competing under extremely hot conditions. Um, I'm originally from the UK, which is probably why my accent sounds this Confusing. way. Confusing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm originally from North Wales, but uh, I did my, uh, my undergraduate and my PhD at Loughborough University in the UK. So and then um, uh, spent 10 years in Canada, and then I ended up in Sydney and moved here about six years ago. So here we are. Wow, you've been escaping this country for a long time. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> 17 years in counting, I think it is. Brilliant. Well, you, you know, look, you've both got awesome 
backgrounds and expertise, which is really relevant to this conversation we're going to have today. And I think that this is poignant because, you know, the, the, this whole topic of environment has become increasingly more interesting as it relates to an important factor which can influence um, training and, and uh, performance and, and competition. And um, as Alan had mentioned, I've, I've interviewed uh, Ricardo Costa a few times. Um, in fact, there's a strong contingent of Australian researchers um, that have contributed to this podcast um, on topics like ultra-endurance, ultra-marathon, which is an area that I, I find of, of great interest. And Alan, actually, um, I, I attempted to uh, do the Marathon de Sable a couple of years ago, but I I totally fell apart in the training only a matter of weeks before the event, but I got a real appreciation for the extremes that certain types of, you know, events um, can lead an athlete towards and that I'll briefly tag myself as an athlete back then perhaps. Um, and this topic of environment um, yeah, it's really, really fascinating. And, and not very long ago, I had a podcast with Trent Stellingworth where we talked about um, altitude and the relevance of that to training and training adaptations. And there was a spin-off with Pete Peeling about iron considerations because there's a particular um, role that that has to play in, in that scenario. But for me personally, uh, and professionally in particular, the, 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 the hot environment thing is of interest. And I say that for two reasons. One, because um, I was a practitioner at the World Cup a couple of years ago where I was working with the Egyptian national football team, um, where we had the double sort of, you know, the double scenario or the double challenge of um, not just Ramadan, but also, you know, we were training in very various environments, uh, which included incredibly hot environments. And I remember Q8 just being unbelievable. Um, and, um, and also, I, I also was the practitioner for the uh, Team GB British fencing team leading up to um, the Olympics, Rio Olympics, and there was an interesting challenge we had with them, which was the fact that the the kit, the gear that they were wearing, presented us with particular challenges with hydration, and actually the sweating would set off some of the gadgets that would register hits. Um, so you know, it, you know, between those two areas, I'm particularly uh, uh, fascinated, and also I've worked a lot with special forces units where there's um, some interest uh, with this, particularly with deployment in, you know, the various uh, theatres that um, present lots of challenges with heat. But it's also, uh, you know, it's not just a nutrition thing here, um, because that's just one side of the coin. It, it's sort of what's happening under the hood, under the bonnet, so to speak. And that's the physiological side of this, which, Ollie, you know, I'm looking forward to you helping us understand the relevance of this, because... And I'll, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my little spiel here where, you, you know, in sports science and sports nutrition, we, you know, I've said this a lot recently, we take quite a reductionist approach to things. Um, you know, we talk about calories, we talk about macros, we look at studies that have been performed in the very sort of neatly controlled environments of the university lab, but it isn't necessarily directly translatable to the environment that that the elite athletes who are not the athletes we've been assessing in the lab um, in 
in the hot or cold or the uh, high altitude environments, which again is not that we see in 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 the uh, you know in, in in practice, so or in the lab. Um, so let's start off, Alan, with you giving us some background as to why this position statement came about, why it was necessary, and then we'll we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah. So the position statement uh, came about last year. So obviously, Sports Dietitians Australia is the main body for sports dietitians in Australia. Pretty obvious. Um, and we have a conference every second year, and our last one was in October of last year. And uh, we decided to have a theme of that being around nutrition for exercise in hot environments, because obviously we have the Tokyo Olympics coming up. Um, although the scare with coronavirus, it's whether it's going to go ahead or not at the moment. Um, Obviously, we just had the World Athletics Championships um, over in the Middle East and you know, a couple of years before that, Cycling World Championships. So I think every time one of these sort of major international events comes up in a hot environment, there's a flurry of you know, review papers and activities, conferences and things that focus around that. And, um, for us, it was the first time that our conference had really focused on a single topic for the entire conference, um, and that was certainly well received. Um, but it was in the planning for that conference and we'd sort of lined up all our speakers um, but uh, Gary Slater over here in Australia suggested, well, why don't we put together a position paper? We've got all these people coming together around the same topic at the same time to cover it from all these different angles. Um, and SDA had done a position statement for nutrition for the adolescent athlete back in 2014. And that was the only one to date that we'd done. And so we decided it was, was too good an opportunity to miss to sort of put all of this together into one paper. Um, and it came together really quickly. I think we uh, briefed all the authors in about August and we had the preprint wow. ready in mid-October. And then it was, uh, yeah, it was published in IJS SNEM on the 1st of January. So, um, yeah, everyone did a, an amazing job of pulling it together so quickly. Yeah, and I'll, I'll be linking that paper to the, to the show notes. And, yeah, I mean, look, it's, uh, it's pretty much a who's who's list of, of contributors. So congratulations on such a, a strong team. But also, as I was inferring earlier, you know, we, it, it would be easy to pass this off as, oh, it's just, you know, just a hot environment, maybe drink a bit more. Um, you know, I, I think people do sort of understand that this is more relevant than, than it, it just being something as simple as that. But just how significant this is and how the body of knowledge has grown and integrates particularly as presented in this position stand that you you guys have worked on um is pretty mind-boggling and again brings us back to the fact that we do need two of you on this podcast because there's going to be some angles here that i think are, 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 are pretty uh, pretty important for us particularly practitioners who may have stronger knowledge bases in practice and less so in things like physiology so ollie I, I think we need to just quickly discuss what we mean by hot environments and, you know, why, why is that even of importance? You know, why is it a significant factor to, to either us as practitioners or um, to researchers helping to help support practitioners with tools in their toolbox, so to speak, or even consumers of this information like athletes themselves? Why, why is this such an important topic? Well, I think it's it's important because we 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 know uh, what the deleterious effects of extreme heat can have on well-being, on ultimately health, but also performance in advance of of, of those more significant issues. Um, and the way in which we can deal with that as a practitioner is to uh, anticipate 
the level of strain and try to mitigate it. So the, way, the thing I always say to people is that it's actually not the environment that's necessarily the problem. The problem is the way the human body is responding to that environment and that's what you've got to deal with. So when you um, want to in, uh, intervene and provide sometimes some, some kind of types of strategies, you need to make sure that those strategies are based on evidence so we know that they work. And also the different types of strategies are gonna be more applicable in different types of environments. Um, but ultimately you don't want to do it when there isn't a heat stress problem. So we need to be able to define what heat stress is. When do we start implementing these particular uh, strategies? Um, and we're really tempted to use ambient air temperature as the kind of the, the guide. And you know, we can do that to a certain extent, but as I'm sure most of your listeners will, will understand and appreciate is that it's not just the temperature of an environment that defines how hot it is, even though it sounds a bit paradoxical. But, um, mm. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that your, the air temperature that we see, um, that, we, that we measure with a thermometer, or if we see on the weather forecasts, uh, or the weather reports, that's actually measured in the shade. So that's only one of the four environmental parameters that actually defines the way the human body responds to an environment. So there's ambient temperature in the shade, which is of course important, but if it's clear and it's sunny and you're out in the sun, then you need to take into account the thermal radiation. So in somewhere like Australia, uh, given the latitude that we're at, um, so in Sydney, um, we'll measure something called black globe temperature, which gives us an indication of the additional thermal radiation that comes from either direct sources, diffuse sources, or reflected off structures around us. And on a clear sunny day in the middle of the summer, black globe temperature will be at least 15 degrees Celsius higher than air temperature in the shade. So that really kind of indicates how much extra thermal stress there is in the environment, which you're not really accounting for if you don't look at um, thermal radiation, you're just looking at that air temperature in the shade. The other two things that are really important um, humidity is an enormously important factor. Um, so uh, the reason that humidity is important is because the main way in which we cool ourselves down is um, it's not through the production of sweat, but this the evaporation of sweat. And the drive for evaporation of sweat from the skin surface is predominantly determined by the difference in absolute humidity between the skin and the air. So the more humid that it is, you might be sweating profusely, but you see that sweat sitting on the skin surface. It's not getting off the skin. It's not vaporizing and it's not doing its job of cooling you, but it's serving to dehydrate you progressively. So that's why it becomes quite problematic if it's a warm but very humid environment. And the fourth environmental parameter is wind speed. So that can be self-generated air velocity as you're doing different types of activities. You're moving the body through an air mass and that will generate convection across the skin surface. The other thing is just your ambient airflow as well. So we're all familiar with that sweet relief that we get when a, when a cool wind comes through on a hot stuffy day. And that's because that airflow will accelerate that rate of evaporation of sweat from the skin. So there's those four different environmental parameters that define a thermal environment. So if you're then to ask me, all right, well, what is warm? 30 degrees Celsius is warm, it's 70% humidity. But if it's 20% humidity and it's a little windy and it's shady, then it's actually not too bad. So um, it's a very <laughs> uh, long-winded answer to no, seemingly a simple question, but um, I think that kind of um, uh, helps people understand the complexity of it in a sense. Yeah, well, no, that's great. And um, there was two thoughts in my head on that. The first one is, uh, I'm not sure I remember the last time that there was a scenario to have relief of 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 of, of respite from heat here in the UK. Uh, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but also and and exactly why I wanted you to to open with that was the fact that this isn't just a case of you know black and white, hot or cold. 
you know, like a tap, you know, it's either hot or cold and you may have slight variations between those two, you know, situations, but actually there's huge amounts of um, complexity. So it's a very, it's a deeply nuanced thing. So that's obviously going to require a lot of contextualization, isn't it? And therein lies a pretty it is, and, and that's before actually mentioning the two personal parameters that define how hot a person gets in an environment. So you yes. have the thick four parameters, but what you're doing, so how much heat you're generating from muscle contractions inside the body, and also the level of clothing that you're wearing also determines how hot you get. So you kind of separate into climate, activity, and clothing. So those three main things that determine how hot you ultimately will get. Right, great. So, so we start off understanding that, you know, heat or a hot environment, you know, is a, is complicated. Um, and Alan, as a, as a practitioner with, with knowledge of that science, with, you know, with, with, with a deeper understanding as you are of the fact that this isn't just a simple black and white scenario from a, from a looking at that through the lens of the practitioner, who's trying to make some decisions on this and who's trying to contextualize you know what, what exactly is the environment this person's getting into what you know what what, what what sort of areas do i need to start to think about what, what what are the first areas then that you would need to start to go on that yeah it's a good question and i guess we have to think about this both in the context of training as well as competition uh, because someone might be training in a cold you know a pretty cool environment for a long period of time and then suddenly travel to somewhere that's quite warm and so then there's the whole issue around you know acclimatization or acclimation to heat um, and then the other aspect of course is particularly for the endurance and, and ultra endurance events is the environment can change over time so you can start you know an ultra marathon at 6 a.m in the morning and it's you know 12 degrees celsius and then by the middle of the day it's 40 degrees celsius and then it goes back to 12 degrees again by the end of the race so um, this can also be a dynamic environment where you can't just say you might, for example, want to do a fluid balance assessment and try and work out, you know, how much sweat someone's going to lose on a per hour basis. But in an event like that, it's going to be completely different in the first five hours to the middle five hours to the last five hours. So, you know, even that, you can't just put a single number on it and say, that's your number. Um, and as Ollie said, you know, you've got things like wind speed, you know, a, a change in wind direction or speed comes through and that alters things. So, yeah, I mean, for those sort of things, you can try and anticipate what's happening as a practitioner and um, you know, have some strategies and some plans around that, but you have to be flexible because you, you're never going to know exactly what's going to happen on the day. And Mother Nature has a way of uh, surprising us uh, when we least expect it. So um, we need to, to have that sort of flexibility built in, I think. And uh, I think where we go wrong sometimes is looking at sort of guidelines and saying, this is what we need to do and having a rigid target, whether it's fluid, whether it's sodium, whether it's, you know, whatever strategy it is, yeah. um, because appreciate that, things are never going to work out the same on any individual day. And even things like, you know, sweat rate changes. If, even if everything is identical, there's a variation of probably about 10% from day to day. That's natural variation. Yeah, that's great. Because, again, in the same way that, you know, heat or the perception of a hot environment or, you know, all this stuff that we're going to delve further into isn't black and white. Also, you're quite right. The day itself could end up going in a very different direction and you might have over-prepared for one scenario at the expense of the other. Um, so I guess a, a big practical part of this is, is we need to do some research, so to speak, to try and understand what the strengths and limitations are of all these approaches and, and, and be prepared like the, uh, 
you know, Baden Powell and all that. Um, it's like the military would say, you know, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance, so to speak. And there's some, <laughs> there's some angles there that we might even delve into. Um, but, the Beijing Olympics was a classic example of that. Yeah. You know, the um, huge amount of preparation. It was the hot Olympics. Everyone was prepared, had slushies ready, had, you know, cooling vests, all sorts of things. And uh, I think it was the men's road race and cycling was a yeah. classic example of that. So much preparation into, you know, getting all this gear ready to pre-cool these guys, keep them cold. The day arrived and just bucketed with rain all day. And all of a sudden, all those strategies they had were completely a waste of time. Yes, and it's a... You, you but they need to be prepared. Yeah, they do need to be prepared. And it's just, I guess it's one's interpretation of prepared for what, isn't it? And I guess it's the, you know, all eventualities is what we must bear in mind. I, yep. I've, I've, I, and we will delve into this in this conversation, but previous podcasts, um, like with Lewis James, for example, we've talked about hydration strategies where, um, you know, a, a lot of thought goes into how we can m sort of optimize, maximize hydration and, if you like, carrying capacity of fluid within the body, that sort of thing. But that also makes you heavier. <laughs> uh, and that could in itself be a problem. And you may be slowing down to take a pee and you can't afford to slow down or even stop to take a pee. So there's a lot, you know, obviously not as significant an issue in ultra endurance events, but yeah, it's the eventualities uh, of this. So Ollie, I think we need, we need to get back in and delve a bit more into the physiological effects of exertional heat stress. And right at the start of this, this, this process is, I think, you know, a good, good little overview of thermoregulation as, as is relevant to this topic would be a nice place to start, please. Sure. Okay. So, um, I mean, if we go back to the fundamental factors, so, um, you know, we, everybody is when they're at rest, they'll have a resting core temperature around about 37 degrees Celsius. And we have inbuilt thermoregulatory mechanisms to try to maintain that body temperature within safe limits. It naturally goes up to a new elevated steady state during physical activity. That's perfectly normal. Uh, but the problem is, is when you can't physiologically compensate the metabolic heat production that you're generating inside the body to the extent that core temperature. You can have rises in core temperature of 1.52 degrees Celsius without pretty much any ill effects whatsoever, particularly in well-trained um, aerobically fit athletes. Um, if you do areas like 39.5 degrees Celsius, that might be, you might then expect an elevated risk of heat exhaustion. It's only when we really start exceeding that core temperature threshold around about 40 degrees Celsius do we really then start to see more, more issues among athletes. However, there's some really nice data. Uh, so uh, Julian Perriard, who's at the University of Canberra, is also his uh, previous uh, research about Aspatar in Qatar, they've they measured core temperatures as high as 41.5 degrees Celsius in elite cyclists during activity or during during UCI championships, and uh, so that demonstrates that that there isn't a, a single fixed um, core temperature that would ultimately result in any devastating consequences for everybody. Um, so I think uh, so that's from a health perspective. Uh, what we do know is that. If you and you, know, you talked about the way in which this area is kind of evolving, and we've learned a lot of new um, uh, new mechanisms over the last 10, 15 years or so. It's been great work done in the US, uh, looking at the underlying mechanisms of heat stroke. Now we kind of better understand that now, so we can attribute it more towards 
um, the redirection of blood flow away from the gut, which results in a low level of oxygen delivery to, to, to the tissue of the gut. Um, and then associated with high local tissue temperatures, the, uh, the gap junctions of the gut become looser. And that becomes problematic because then you start getting bad bacteria starting to leak out of the gut into the surrounding interstitial fluids, which would then lead to a sepsis response and that and multi-organ failure. So uh, we know that that's really the pathway uh, whereby people get really, really sick and potentially die because of heat-related illness. Before that, though, we've got um, the impacts of heat on athletic performance. Um, the underlying mechanisms are not understood completely at this point. Back around about 20 years ago, we kind of felt as though there was a fixed absolute core temperature at which we would volitionally stop exercising. Uh, there used to be this idea of this threshold, this kind of um, critical threshold of 40 degrees Celsius core temperature at which we'd stop exercising. There's been some good data that's come out in the last 15 years that's kind of showed that's not necessarily the true in a lot of cases. Um, there's been this idea of an anticipatory model that we, our body anticipates um, impending doom. So we then self-regulate our exercise intensity to try to prevent that happening. There's not a lot of evidence supporting that necessarily, um, uh, but it's not being completely refuted to be fair. Um, but I think uh, what, what is a good model to think uh, of this is the idea that we've only got a certain amount of blood flow that's available. So when we get very hot, one of the first ways in which we try to keep cool is that we redirect blood from the deeper core tissues towards the skin surface. So we know that when we passively heat somebody and they become very hot, they have a very hot skin, as much as eight liters per minute of blood can be delivered to the skin vasculature. So now you've got a lot of that blood volume that is out in the skin. Obviously, you up your cardiac output to maintain blood flow to other tissues. And now there's this competition between blood to the skin to permit to help um, support cooling at the skin surface. Delivery via the bloodstream uh, to, to the muscles as well. So there's this competition that's taking place. And uh, that's ultimately responsible often for the reductions in exercise performance when we get very, very hot because of that, re that competition for blood flow. So, I mean, that's, that's great. I, the, the thing that came to my head there was from a, from a practice perspective or an in-the-field viewpoint, I mean, we don't, we don't have, you know, a, a dashboard that tells us what the engine temperature is or, you know, what the oil levels are and so on um and you did mention about self-regulation and i know perception and there's a whole psychological thing there you know in terms of bridging this gap between science and practice what i mean what are your as the physiologist what is your perspective on that that's relevant to in the field well i mean i think it, it depends which kind of group of athletes that you're working with so if you're working with um probably non-elite athletes i think that when there's less at stake then those cues that you get from the sensory organs that we have in the human body are typically sufficient to encourage you to downregulate your exercise intensity to the point where you kind of avoid that critical problem. Um, it's when we are dealing with these elite athletes who are highly, highly motivated and they can basically, um, to an extent, ignore a lot of these sensory yeah. cues that they're receiving because they've been training so hard for something, uh, they're highly, highly motivated, there's other things going on, and that then kind of leads to situations that become very dangerous. A good example is um, a guy called Corey Stringer. He was an offensive lineman for the Minnesota Vikings, so an NFL American football team. It's back in 2001, and he was, a, he was an all-pro offensive lineman 
and he was um, in, in, you know, in good shape. He was in a, uh, a competing um, during a, um, a summer preseason training camp from Minnesota back in 20, 2001. And uh, he died of heat stroke. Um, and that is kind of a scenario that you've got all of these kind of competing influences. It was quite hot. It was very humid. They're wearing quite a lot of equipment because they're wearing the helmets and the pads. Uh, the activity levels are very, very high. And plus, it's a very competitive environment. Mm. So all of these things kind of congregate to develop a situation that can be very perilous to, to the elite athlete, even despite the fact that they are you know, very, very well trained and conditioned for these conditions. Now, you make a good point that I think we, we should mention. And, and Alan, I'll have you get into this quickly. In terms of what kinds of sports, well, if we d differentiate types of sports, but also types of athletes, because those terms in themselves could do with a bit of defining. I mean, what, where, where, where does this have serious relevance? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, like in the paper, uh, and Julian um, wrote this section around the performance aspect, is that in those short, single um, events, sprint type efforts, actually performance is improved in hot environments. So they love the heat uh, and there's no, no issue there because they're not going to generate heat. You know, by the time the event's over, they haven't generated enough heat to you know, cause any major problem. Um, so it tends to be sort of the longer events, um, sort of probably half an hour plus. Um, and then, then it becomes a trade-off. As Ollie said, you know, the higher the exercise intensity, the more heat's being generated per minute. So you often see actually the highest rectal temperatures if you're measuring it at the conclusion of like a, a 10K race on the track than you do after a, a marathon or an ultra marathon because the intensity is not quite as high. That said, the flip side to that is how long are you exposed to that environment and that you know, elevated body temperature? And we know, for example, the gastrointestinal side of things, as in, and as an example, that intestinal damage that occurs with, um, with exertional heat stress, the longer the event goes, the more likely that damage is to occur. And we see that in the lab and uh, a lot of the studies in that gut exercise area you know a lot of the earlier studies were one hour exercise protocols and they just didn't see much damage because it's just mm. not long enough to accumulate enough heat stress to, to cause that damage um and then you know a lot of the work that, that ricardo and Rhiannon snipe who did her phd with, with ricardo a few years ago now um they sort of did two hour models that are up to about 35 degrees about 25 percent humidity and then they started to see a lot of those sort of in gastrointestinal integrity issues happening at that the two hour mark, but it took at least two hours um, in that environment to start to accumulate enough damage, I suppose, for that to occur. So there's, there's probably two parts to it there, um, the intensity and then the duration. And they kind of work in, in opposite ways, but um, kind of have similar effects in a way. Yes, yeah, so it's, uh, it's pretty broad, isn't it? So there's a lot of people yeah. this is relevant to. And I guess also some people may or may not think of themselves as elite athletes and sometimes whether they're elite or not may not even be relevant. So for example, you know, you, you do see people dropping dead on, on, you know, charity marathon runs and uh, you, you mention um, you know, professional football there, Ollie, you know, collegiate football, this happens a lot. Um, well, I high school not, but it's as well. Yeah, yeah. High school. Yeah. It's pretty, is pretty interesting, which brings me back to the image of, you know, an American football player, um, obviously not that dissimilar to a, a rugby player, except that they are wearing more clothes. Um, they do wear helmets and they um, tend to be in hotter environments than we find ourselves 
uh, at least when we think of, of European rugby environments, um, things like body fat and muscle mass. How, how relevant is that? Um, it, it, I think that's an interesting angle on this as well. Yeah, definitely. So, um, yeah, we've, do, we've done quite a bit of work looking at this topic ourselves in, in, in my lab over the last eight years or so, trying to really try to uh, develop a, a better understanding of that individual variability that we see in the core temperature and sweating response um, when seemingly people are doing the same thing in the same environment, wearing the same clothing. And that's ultimately what we're trying to do is then come up with more evidence-based guidelines to, 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 to protect these athletes. So, I mean, the first one is to talk about is, is body fat. So that is really, really tempting to think that body fat per se is bad in the heat. Yeah. Um, it's the tempting insulator. to believe that it's insulator, right? Exactly. Yeah. And that's what people, always, people, that's what people always say. So we've done some So we did a, a really nice study, if I may say so myself. We published in the journal <laughs> Physiology back in 2016. And what we wanted to do is it, um, isolate the independent of body fat from total and metabolic production. So we know then is if we see a difference in the changing core temperature of these people who have different body fat percentages but the same body mass and metabolic, same metabolic heat production, we know it's due to the body fat only. So what we needed to do is actually is recruit people that were matched for the same body mass but had drastically different body fat percentages. So mm. for example, the first pair of participants that we managed to recruit, they both had 95 kilograms of total body mass but one was 38% body fat, the other person was 7% body fat. Wow. Imagine doing that and the level of recruitment that we do is the most difficult study we've ever done. But we managed to do that because, well, we wanted to do that because we wanted to try to answer this particular question. And what we found is that the amount of sweat that the high adipose tissue participants produced during exercise was exactly the same as the lean participants because the drive for evaporation was exactly the same. Um, the, uh, the changes in skin blood flow were pretty much the same as well. Uh, one thing we found is that the people with a higher adipose tissue got a little hotter, but we think that's down to their specific heat capacity. So if you take a kilogram of body fat tissue and we compare it to the amount of heat energy that you need to put into those two different types of tissues is different in order to raise it by one degree Celsius. You can put, you need to only need to put in less heat energy into the body fat tissue. So the people with the higher body fat have a lower specific heat capacity, therefore they heat up more despite, them, despite the fact that they're actually storing the same amount of heat inside the body. So all this to say that it's not an issue with their ability to dissipate the heat, it's an, it's an issue with their ability to manage the heat that's stored inside their body. And that's the, that's the only difference that we found between the higher adipose tissue and the lower adipose tissue. Hmm. The other thing I should point out is that typically what we find is that people who are carrying more adipose tissue are typically heavier and if we're competing in a sport that requires you to carry that total mass the amount of heat that you produce when you're exercising is actually going to be higher because it's a weight-bearing exercise if it's cycling then it's a non-weight-bearing exercise and it's less of an issue so body fat does matter but only to an extent in terms of um, heat internal heat management it doesn't interfere with your ability to direct uh, blood to the skin surface or to sweat yeah. Um, the other thing, so, you know, and then uh, there's a common uh, um, uh, viewpoint that we must take into account people's lean mass because people's lean mass, that's, well, that's the metabolically active tissue that is generating the heat 
in the first place. And to an extent, that's true. But really what comes down, what, what it comes down to is how efficient and economical those physical actions are. So um, running is a really nice example of this. So we did a study where we compared um, two groups of people that were exactly the same fitness, but we found they were both very fit groups. This is done in Canada, this particular study. But we found a group that were a high running economy, so therefore they consume less oxygen and produce less heat to run a given speed. They were cross-country runners. And then we got another group of people that were fit, but they were uneconomical runners. So they need to generate more heat in order to run the same speed. They were ice hockey players because they're very fit. They're not used to running. They're used to skating. So this is how we recruited them. And we found that makes a big difference. So if you're an uneconomical runner, that will actually create a greater thermal burden that the human body has to deal with and subsequently um, can't deal with, and it results in higher body temperatures. So that's the more important factor relative to these other things like how much lean body mass you have, how much um, body fat you have. Brilliant. Yeah. So I guess from the practitioner's perspective, Alan, you know, we, we need to be very mindful of the bigger picture uh, rather than just focusing on the things that I guess as, as sports nutritionists, we, you know, we, we do tend to get to obsessed with certain things like fueling and um, you know, body fat percentages uh, uh, and so on. And, and obviously, I mean, like, yeah, there's, I mean, you make a very good point there, Alan, um, Ollie, sorry about, you know, the, the, the metabolic cost of the dead weight, as you put it. Um, but obviously some of that, like the lean mass may be functional, you know, because of its impact on strength and power. So there's a lot to think there. And obviously the other side of this, which isn't so relevant to this topic, but body fat may have benefits for those in cold environments. And I guess where Alan, we talked about just a few minutes back about the fact that you might prepare for a hot environment, but you could find yourself in a cold environment or like for these multi-stage events where it, it might be hot, you know, for half the day, but it might be freezing cold for the other half the day. And then it's all very well being prepared for during the day, but then you get hypothermia in the middle of the night. Um, Alan, what are your sort of practical perspectives on that? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said before, that flexibility is obviously really important. So it's having that um, that plan um, for, for kind of both scenarios and then having the adaptability that you can alter from plan A to plan B as as things change, I think, is the, the key there. Um, so, again, you know, using fluid intake as an example, knowing, you know, what your likely fluid requirements are in that hot time of the day, but also knowing what it's going to be in that, that cooler time of the day and, and knowing, you know, when to switch from plan A to plan B, um, and then obviously using you know, internal cues, things like thirst as a, as a feedback mechanism to help you in that process. So, no, thank you for that. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to just be mindful that, that, that it's very tempting to talk about the science, but we must also talk about the relevance of that to, mm-hmm. to practice. Um, I just want to dial back a, a, for a second, because you talked about gastrointestinal function, which you know, it, it, it's not just the impact that, that the training or, or the exertional, um, you know, impact can have on this, but also, you know, as nutritionists, we're also being mindful of the fact that the gastrointestinal system is also the equipment with which we, you know, we, 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 we try and interact with our foods and fluids. And there are scenarios where we're also needing to fuel on the go. We need to hydrate on the go. Now, I got into gastrointestinal issues with Ricardo Costa in great detail. Um, but 
in the context of nutrition for hot environments, what, what are the things there that we need to bear in mind? Yeah, well, I mean, that whole sort of pathway that Ricardo describes in terms of exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome, you know, that doesn't change in a hot environment. It's just that the heat in, increases a lot of those risk factors. So in terms of the, the two main pathways through which that issue occurs, it's blood flow to the gut, as Ollie described earlier, and it's that neuroendocrine pathway, so that, that stress response to exercise. And both of those are exacerbated in hot environments because you have more blood flow periphery um, in terms of that circulatory pathway and that, that blood flow to the gut. And then in terms of that neuroendocrine side of things, um, you know, heat increases the stress response to exercise, as does, you know, um, fluid, unreplaced fluid loss. So that the more your fluid, uh, you know, the greater the fluid deficit, the greater the stress response. And that seems to have impacts more on the, the function of the gastrointestinal tract. So the lack of blood flow is more around the integrity of the gut itself. Um, and then, you know, damage occurring to the enterocytes and so forth. Uh, whereas the other side, which actually we, we now think is probably the most common cause of, of GI issues, is more that functional response. So it's the, the motility of the gut, the gastric emptying, uh, but not just gastric emptying, how quickly things move through the intestinal tract and so forth. I mean, I think from the practical perspective, um, you know, Rhiannon's PhD, as I mentioned before, really focused on that heat stress uh, factor, particularly on um, GI integrity, but also a bit on function as well. Uh, and she was able to show that, you know, just ingesting carbohydrate, it's simple and it's something that you would usually do for other reasons other than the GI tract is enough to pretty much completely abolish the damage that occurs to the gut during exercise. So all you need to do is consume, well, in her case, it was 45 grams an hour of yeah. glucose. And all of a sudden you don't have an issue with um, gastrointestinal damage because uh, well, Ricardo's thoughts is that basically it allows that blood to, or it stimulates more blood flow back to the gut uh, enough to maintain the integrity of the, the epithelial lining there. Uh, and then in terms of the, that sort of stress response, you know, ma maintaining adequate hydration, uh, various cooling strategies beyond that, whether it's, you know, pre-cooling, cooling during exercise, hyperhydration, all the sort of things we talk about in the paper, um, they can have an impact as well. But there are other factors for other people that have nothing to do with the heat. So we need to be mindful that, you know, heat isn't the only thing that causes GI issues, but it certainly will exacerbate a lot of those risk factors for people. Yeah, I mean, that's a whole series of podcasts in itself, isn't it? And in fact, um, yeah. I have a colleague of yours I'm trying to get onto the podcast to talk about that, but you know, fob yeah. and, and so on. Um, yeah, I think the um that that model that Ricardo sort of first drew up in 2017, that the latest version of that is in this paper. So mm -hmm. people want to right. sort of look at that model of, of gastrointestinal issues and the contributing factors and the pathways. It's it's summarized um in the, the latest version of that model that Ricardo's done in this paper. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Good. Um Ollie, so yes. We, you know, we've talked about heat stress a bit, um, and you've mentioned briefly some of the consequences of that. But, but specifically, what are the? I mean, what are the effects of exertional heat stress on performance and health? What are the what are the key areas that we need to be mindful here? Well, from a performance perspective, you know, there's there's a lot of data that's demonstrated really quite dramatic reductions in, um, in exercise performance, aerobic exercise performance. Uh, when, so if we measure the, the heat stress of an environment using uh, wet bulb globe temperature, for example, which is not perfect, but it's a way of doing it. And uh, when you get into WBGT values of 
of you know of higher than 27 28 you start seeing these quite dramatic reductions in 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 um uh in, ex in aerobic exercise performance so um again that's kind of owing to well, a whole host of things but um i think that cardiovascular model really does a, a good job of describing a lot of that variability um so i mean I, I mean ultimately that that's that's the main thing that athletes are worried about in the first case um they do all they can to 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 prepare to try to mitigate those those uh, decrements in performance and there's you know, good evidence of a whole host of different strategies that one can use either pre-cooling or per-cooling so uh, applying different cooling strategies uh, during an event in order to mitigate the rise in core temperature and, and maybe uh, try to blunt the um, the amount of, uh, of, of, of uh, blood flow redistribution to try to enable that uh, continuation of, of aerobic performance. Um, there's a lot of good evidence that uh, kind of supports uh, things like um, you know, isolary ingestion beforehand um, but a lot of that is not necessarily cooling effect per se I think there's um, from what we can see is that um, we've, we've done some studies where we, we've, we've identified that you have independent thermoreceptors in, in the abdominal cavity somewhere which can regulate sweat rates so if mm. you hit the stomach with a big bolus of ice or an ice slushing mix and you're stimulating those thermoreceptors it actually shuts down your sweating to an extent so you end up actually storing more heat inside the body in some cases. But I think you know, there is a lot of good sports science literature that's shown that if it's self-regulated exercise, you have that cooler thermal sensation, you introduce that heat sink, then it does actually improve um, uh, performance in a, hot uh, in, a, in a hot environment. But I think it's important to recognize that just because you're improving performance and you feel cooler, doesn't mean, actually mean that you are cooler. And in mm. some cases you could actually argue that by making somebody feel cooler when they're not cooler, you actually place them potentially at a greater risk of heat-related illness on account of the fact they'll upregulate their exercise intensity and increase their rates of metabolic heat production. Whether that's to a dangerous level or not, um, that's yet to be seen. But um, I think it's important just to recognize from a practical perspective that just because somebody feels cooler doesn't actually mean that they are physiologically cooler. That's sometimes difficult for people to get their head around. Yeah, well, it, it is, but I understand the challenge. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I can go into that in a little bit more detail if you like to explain why that is physiologically. Absolutely. Well, um, just so I don't forget to say what I was going to say, but I'll let well, you handle sure, yeah, this yeah. the way that you want. Because this, yeah. you know, it's important to me, well, not just for my own selfish reasons of understanding this more and more, because I do work a lot with people doing this, but also um, practitioners generally, they, you know, they need to understand this stuff in order to be able to help or more importantly not try and do stuff sometimes because you know it, it's 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 one of those things that uh, you maybe shouldn't do but the, the 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 monitoring of this is something that i thought was interesting and the, you know the advent of technology and the ability to swell you know swallow capsules that stay in the body for a while or yeah. whatever yeah. What, anyway i'll hand it back to you i just didn't want to forget about that part yeah, no, that's good. Yeah. So um, the reason that, so the way in which we sense an environment are typically with free nerve endings that reside from a thermal perspective that mm. reside predominantly in our skin. So uh, these are kind of peripheral thermoreceptors that reside in the skin and there you have some that are sensitive to cold and some that are sensitive to heat. So if you are um, stimulating those thermoreceptors, you can then perceive a hot or cold environment. And I think from an evolutionary point of view, the reason that's been really useful is because then we can kind of anticipate um, a hot environment and behaviorally adapt to it to avoid ourselves from potentially stressful environment in advance of it becoming 
dangerous. But we, you know, when we're starting to try to manipulate the senses by doing external cooling and things like this, then um, it's, it's, it, you, you start developing a bit of a dissociation between how you feel on the outside of the body and how hot you are inside the body. And make no mistake, when it comes to what matters when you get when you're approaching heat exhaustion and heat related or heat stroke, for example, then your tissue temperatures inside the body are the thing that matters the most. So I think that's kind of, yeah, it's just important to, to, to keep that in mind. If we go back to your comment about an incre you know, increasingly easier ways of, of assessing thermal status of people. So, you know, the, the, the holy grail really, if you will, for a, a lot of thermal physiologists for, for decades has been to try to come up with non-invasive ways of assessing core temperature. And there's been a lot of gadgets that have been developed over the years, some with slightly more success than others, but we still haven't really nailed it yet to the point where we can, we can take a probe and stick it on a certain part of the skin and then get a, a reliable measure of deep body temperature. The best ways of measuring deep core temperature are by inserting a probe in the body core. And obviously there's different ways in which we can do that. Rectal temperature is a common thing that we do in the lab. Um, aural canal temperature is not so great because there's a lot of interference with um, ambient air temperature, for example. Esophageal temperature is the way we measure in our mechanistic studies. But again, that's not a very practical thing for practitioners to do in, in, the, in the field. We take a long, thin probe around about 40 centimeters long, insert it up the nose, and it goes and sits in the esophagus in the area bound by the left ventricle. It's a very nice way of measuring core temperature in the lab, but again, it's not nothing you can do necessarily in the field. Uh, but over the last, say, 15 or 20 years, maybe, there's been the development of these telemetric pills, which... Um, if used properly and, um, and um, uh, given to the athlete with the appropriate timing and the appropriate, um, under the appropriate conditions, they can do a pretty good job. So these little capsules, no bigger than a, than a vitamin pill, you'll swallow it in about six hours before you want to take the thermal measurements. It'll then go into the stomach, eventually you'll let it exit the stomach and enter the, the, uh, the, the intestines. And then it's, you know, throughout it's emitting uh, a radio signal and you pick up that radio signal with a handheld device and it'll tell you how hot those tissues are in that area. So it's a very nice um, uh, piece of kit. Uh, they're very expensive um, and uh, you know uh, it's not as easy as it initially seems. You've got to make sure you get the timing down. There's a um, very you know, high level of variability in how quickly the pill uh, exits the stomach and works its way through the intestines. You never know exactly where that pill is, um, yeah. but it's still a nice addition. And, it, and from a practical perspective, if you have the funding to support this type of thing, then it's quite a nice um, way of assessing core temperature in athletes in the field. And it doesn't interfere with anything that they do. They don't even feel it's in there. They just um, uh, get rid of it uh, probably about a couple of days later. And they don't even realize so the, the reason why I'm mentioning it is because in this sort of gadget driven world that we're in, particularly with endurance athletes, you've only got to look at, you know, triathletes or ultra endurance athletes or whatever. I mean, they've got all the watches and gadgets and straps and so on. And, uh, you know, it's a bit like Q and James Bond, you know, they just walk into, you know, a room or a shed and it's just full of kit. But there's some caution there, isn't there? Because one's ability to interpret that information is limited by the amount of knowledge that you've got. And quite frankly, you know, you, you need a lot uh, to, to be able to use that stuff. Certainly. One, one thing I should add as well is that just because we can buy it and there are wearables, it gives you a number. It doesn't necessarily mean that number's correct. So um, 
Uh, and I think that's really, really important just you know, for maybe necessarily the, the, the elite athletes who have access to more resources or the amateur athlete um, who maybe has uh, limited resources and they have these uh, certain wearable devices. Um, I think it's really you know, doing your research into uh, what, what the literature is in terms of independent evaluation of the accuracy of those particular devices is really, really important, particularly when it comes to body temperature. You know, there are some wearable devices that have a little sensor on the back of the watch, for example, that might give you a, a temperature, but um, you know, uh, it's not as easy as that, unfortunately. I wish it was. Yeah, um, yeah, we're so just not there yet. With, We're not, yeah. and you know, um, a lot of people working on these things. One other thing I'll add as well is, is uh, I was attending a conference at the American College of Sports Medicine conference, and it was a um, particular um, a symposium that I was a part of uh, last year. And uh, there was this, um, this, this uh, a very successful researcher from Northwestern University, and he was reporting uh, these new methods for measuring sweat output using this very, very neat technology. It was a series of tubing that would enable you to measure exactly how much sweat you're producing. But then I couldn't help but wonder what one is meant to do with that information that would be practically useful. Because as Alan referred to is that often, you know, if you you can tolerate certain levels of dehydration before it becomes deleterious to your performance and certainly your health. Mm. And then we do have that inbuilt mechanism of thirst, of course, which if it's functioning properly, um, it does do a reasonable job of, of, of defending to a certain extent. It's certainly true that uh, you are already dehydrated to an extent when you start to feel thirsty. But I think, um, you know, the idea of, 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 of listening to um, the body's natural feedback and sensors um, is a good start. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah, well, we're, I, I could go on for ages about, I just find the whole, you know, test don't guess thing. I've done podcasts on that. You know, I'm fascinated yeah. that particularly uh, uh, to inform practice, but I think we'll go down a rabbit hole there. But um, you know, it is, it is true though, that, that particularly, you know, consumers of this um, and or coaches and so on that get involved is, there are lots of tests, testing gadgets and things out there, like for assessing sweat rates and so on, but it's not really that accurate or, and or it's misinterpreted, I feel. Um, but we'll have to park that because we've got other things I want to get into. And oh, sure, no problem. Just, just one, it's not the final area by any means, but I, I just wanted to quickly keep you on, uh, Ollie, before I come back to Alan on some things. Um, Heat acclimation and, ac and acclimatization you know, is one. I've mentioned yeah. prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. I love that, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, you know, you'll see people who will you know, go into heat chambers. Um, they might go off to you know, have a week's holiday, a training holiday, so to speak, somewhere. But that yeah. in itself might be weeks or months before that actual event. Uh, they just turn up the temperature in their rooms or in their gyms, you know, <laughs> sit in a sauna for an hour or two. In terms of of being prepared, and remember, we need to keep this relevant to nutrition for hot environments. What 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 are the what, what are the implications, um, and what is the relevance of heat acclimation and climatization? I mean, I I, I think that uh, there's there's very very few things you could do that would prepare you better for performing and uh, staying safe in the heat than. Uh, acclimating or acclimatizing to the environment that you're going to be exposed to. Um, there's a whole host of physiological adaptations that occur through a well-controlled series of uh, multiple heat exposures and heat exercise exposures, which will develop these uh, this acclimatization response, acclimation response. 
you have an expansion of plasma volume which increases blood volume you have a decrease in your resting body temperature so you're further away from that critical threshold whatever it may be at which you might become sick um, the cardiovascular strain that you experience and rating of perceived exertion associated with that strain becomes much lower um, uh, you, uh, your upper limit for sweating is much higher therefore um, the ceiling for physiological compensability of a heat stress environment becomes hotter and more humid um, you, or you can exercise at higher rates of metabolic heat production before running into trouble. So there's all sorts of uh, adaptations that occur. I think it's just making sure that um, the heat acclimatization or acclimation procedure that you're taking is sufficient to enable those adaptations to develop. One other thing that does occur uh, with acclimatization is the amount of sweat that's in your, or the amount of um, sodium that's in your sweat uh, becomes more dilute so um, the, the rates of salt loss may become well you're sweating more volume so even though it's more diluted the absolute amount of salt that you lose might be um, might be quite similar but uh, but certainly um, that's beneficial from a, from a from a sodium balance perspective as well uh, but I think it's making sure that you're exposed um, on sequential days uh, uh, to heat exposure is really um, combining that heat exposure with physical activity and uh, you know you, you can get some good adaptation responses that occur over the course of five consecutive days of let's say 60 to 100 minutes of exposure um, but to get that full acclimatization or acclimation response you really need to do at least seven maybe even up to 10 or 14 days of consecutive exposure and that will really make a massive difference i mean there's some really nice data that you know some classic data that we see in textbooks where you see you know the, the, the exercising heart rate drops from day one to day seven of this heat acclimation protocol by about 25 beats per minute. So these are, these are, these are, these are huge shifts in, um, in, in how hot people get, what the cardiovascular strain is and how hard it feels. So that can't be anything but beneficial for performance and health in hot environments. And, and the reason why I'm mentioning this is, uh, you know, because it's all very well us focusing on very marginal strategies when there are things that, that really do need to be taken care of. And that's why I mentioned that because, it, you know, if you have the opportunity to do that, you should, because it's, it is significant. Like you, you've clearly made, you know. Yeah. That, that's a really nice way of putting it. You know, you can, you can, you know, especially at the elite athlete level, you know, these marginal gains really, you know, you can get them to add up to make a, a, a massive difference to the outcome, but you can try all those, 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 those marginal strategies, if you will. But if you're not acclimatizing for the heat and you're going to be competing in the heat, then you're wasting your time, I think. Um, yeah. So I think it's, you know, it's really taking care of the main things first and then adding on top uh, the, the, these additional things that we can do to modulate performance. The, 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 the explanation that I like is, um, it, 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 or the analogy is that it's like mowing the lawn when your house is on fire. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess um, the flip side to that too, Ollie, is the, yeah. um, the decline in acclimation. So if you... You know, you train here in Australia in our winter to go to Kona and compete in the Ironman over right. there, and you 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 might heat acclimate in you know a heat chamber or you know set up a heater in your bathroom and set up your bike in there or something like that. Um, but then four days beforehand, you stop doing that, and then you get on a plane and travel for a day or two. Do you want to talk about right. you know how quickly that effect wears off? Yeah, so I mean, that's, that would probably be an entirely different uh, podcast, I think. But um, that's a good point, Alan. Like, so we know that uh, that that heat acclimation response, you know, it takes about 
you know, at least as long as it took to develop to disappear. Um, some work by Ken Pandolf back in the late 70s, early 80s, really nice study that demonstrates the rate at which we acclimate and the rate at which the, the decay of the acclimation response. And, you know, there's anything from a one-to-one to, one to two-to-one ratio of that. But what we do know is that, you know, if you miss a couple of days, you can top up that acclimation response. So in that particular case, what you wouldn't recommend to an athlete is to do all that heat acclimation, then get on the plane, fly to, to Kona, let's say, and then not do anything for two or three days before you compete. Is actually getting there with enough time to make sure that, not to mention things like jet lag, et cetera, et cetera, and then being able to top up your acclimation protocol to the extent that you haven't had too much of a decay so you're ready for competition. And I think that, you know, there's, there's, a, that's, there's, a, there's a big body of literature and uh, it's probably yeah, a much longer conversation. Yeah, well, I, I, think, uh, I think there's a podcast coming for that. I think that's absolutely yeah, fascinating. Yeah, that'd be good one. Um, right, let's keep let's let's get back on uh, let's get back on this particular path of nutrition and and hot environments. Then, um, Alan, so you know the, the the usual thing that crops up when we start talking about this or thinking about this is an athlete starts to become aware one way or the other of of heat being um, having a negative impact on them. So you know they might remove a few items of clothing. Um, but you know, the primary response is to have a drink, uh, consume some, some fluid. Um, maybe you could, cause this is a, you know, this is a big one and this is something that us as nutrition practitioners, performance nutritionists can play a major role in, in helping and supporting our, our, our athletes. Um, and there's a big section on this in, in the paper for obvious reasons. Uh, can you just give us a bit of an introduction to fluid and electrolyte balance? Um, as it relates to you know to to the situation during exertional heat heat stress and acclimation sure yeah so i mean obviously as as ollie's explained we're going to produce sweat um to evaporate and, and cool down as we exercise and uh the combination of factors that he mentioned before in terms of you know the environment the activity and the clothing will have an influence on how much sweat we produce so um sweat rates can be anything from you know 50 to 100 mils an hour up to i think there's been um, a few figures of you know up to four or five liters an hour in american football is in a very hot environment but that's the exception that's that's unusual it's an outlier um so more more often than not you're looking at sort of somewhere between maybe 500 mils up to maybe two liters an hour um with a you know a few exceptions either side of that um so that gives you some idea of, of the fluid loss but you know unless you measure it you're not never going to know for sure exactly what that is uh, and as i said earlier you know, we can go about that process of doing a fluid balance assessment and, and measuring that, working out what someone's sweat rate is. But we need to bear in mind that, um, you know, you could do that twice under identical conditions and you won't get the same results. So we do need to know that it's more a, a rough guide or a range or a ballpark figure, if you like, rather than being a, a set number. So you can't really say, oh, you know, my number is 650 miles an hour in, you know, half Ironman race pace or, you know, marathon race pace or whatever it is. It doesn't quite work that way. So that's the fluid side of things. Uh, and then on the electrolyte side of things, we can obviously take sweat samples and we can measure the sodium concentration of those. And if we know, um, you know the amount of fluid and then we have the concentration, we can work back and work out you know, how much sodium uh, in terms of how many milligrams or millimoles is, is in that um, fluid. Um, the one thing we have to bear in mind is that across the body, different parts of the body will have different sweat sodium concentrations. So if you're sticking a, an absorbent patch on the skin on a forearm, for example, that's probably the most commonly used one, uh, and you, you take your sample and you analyze it and you get 50 millimoles per litre, 
that doesn't mean that your overall body loss is at 50 millimoles per litre. Uh, and there's been some work, um, mainly from the Gatorade Sports Science Institute, going back about 10 years now, um, to develop some regression equations to estimate the whole body sweat sodium concentration from some of these individual sites. Um, although they've done some, some more recent work just a couple of years ago to suggest that actually once you start altering the sweat rate, those equations may not hold and you may need different equations for different sweat rates as well. So uh, that's a, another rabbit hole that's sort of appearing on the horizon. Um, so yeah, you can have your fluid loss, you can have your, your, your electrolyte concentration and then work out your electrolyte loss. And I think in the past, most people have sort of used that uh, and tried to do some form of planning about, you know, how much fluid do I need? How much sodium do I need during my event or training or whatever it is? Um, and I think the, the place where it's been kind of misused a little bit in the past is, again, having that fixed number. My number is 600 mils of an hour of fluid and, you know, 500 milligrams of sodium per hour. Uh, but we know it's, it's far more dynamic than that. Um, mm. And it's never going to be that fixed number. As I said, it's, it's more of a range. Um, and then the other thing is, okay, well, I know I'm losing 700 mils an hour of fluid. How much do I actually need to drink? Do I need to drink the full 700? Do I need half of that, three quarters of that, 20% of that? Um, and that's still an area I think is, um, is still hotly debated in the literature. And I know you had the podcast with, with Lewis James talking about this um, in, from the performance point of view. Um, and I think on the performance point of view, even then, you know, he's done that great work around you know, blinding the hydration status with nasogastric tubes and that sort of thing. Um, and there's, I think, three papers that have used that kind of methodology now. But when you look at them, and we talk about this in the paper, they're all used pretty short, high-intensity exercise models. They're sort of, you know, two-hour preload, but then only a 15-minute all-out performance. So it's you know, probably 90 90%, 95% of the O2 max. Is that relevant? You know, is that level of um, fluid deficit going to affect performance in the same way in someone doing a half Ironman or a pro cycling event or an Ironman or an ultra marathon? Maybe not. Um, the exercise intensity is a lot lower. You need less oxygen delivery. Your heat, you know, your rate of heat production is lower. Um, so I think there's still a lot more water to go under that bridge before we can make conclusions about that. And I think we need to be careful extrapolating some of that data where the outcome was a 15-minute all-out effort and extrapolating that to 10-hour all-out efforts or whatever it is. Water under the bridge or sweat off the back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, um, yeah, I, just to quickly stay on that briefly, because you know this, this is one of those areas where it's very tempting to just again keep this a black and white. This is what the science says. This is what the paper says. Without, like you say, the dynamic, you know, environments. Uh, well, the individual, how dynamic it is from an individual perspective, but also during the course of the event itself, um, which is considerably longer, obviously, than the research um, has looked at thus far. But from a practitioner perspective, um, there's still you're still trying to test and assess these things, aren't you? Like so. Yes. So, firstly, if I present you with a chicken or the egg sort of question, you know what what what, it, what seems to be more relevant the 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 amount of fluid or fluid loss versus the um, you know electrolyte loss or status i mean what's the what from a you know if you had to choose one being more relevant than the other what do you think that would be i would probably go with the fluid i think we know more about the fluid and there's more you know there's a greater body of evidence around that and you know the reason i sort of chose to go down the sodium path is because there is a big lack of, of evidence in that area 
Mm. Um, the electrolytes, I guess, are going to have some impact on the hydration status in that, you know, particularly sodium uh, has a role in influencing where fluid moves in the body, whether it's in the intracellular space or the extracellular space. Um, and then through um, you know, altering the osmolality um, in the, the blood, that will then have an impact on how the kidneys work of excreting fluid as well. So we can retain more fluid if there's more sodium in the blood uh, and in encouraging that to happen. Um, so I think I mean, ultimately um, there's a good paper from, from Lindsay Baker from GSSI 2008 off the top of my head where they um, gave, had four different levels of fluid intake or hydration status. Um, and then within those four, there were three different levels of sodium concentration in the, the drink they were giving. So I think it was zero, 18 millimole per litre and 30 millimole per litre. Uh, and you look at the heart rate responses and the rectal temperature responses in that, and they very much follow the pattern of the fluid intake and the sodium intake had a pretty small, if any, influence on those two parameters, um, which suggests to me that probably the, um, the fluid is far more important. And if we talk about things like hyponatremia, then absolutely the fluid is going to be the more uh, influential factor there. I think as time goes on, though, uh, again, more the ultra-endurance events, the sodium is going to become increasingly important because the, the cumulative deficit of that sodium will get greater and greater as, as time goes on, obviously. You know, the same, obviously, with fluid. But if you're replacing that with water and no sodium at all, um, theoretically, what should happen, at least, is that you know, you you adjust your plasma volume to try and maintain the osmolality in the, the blood. Um, so you're then going to shift more water into the intracellular space or excrete um, excess fluid. So theoretically, again, uh, what should happen is that your ability to maintain plasma volume will get worse and worse over time. So by having that sodium there, you can help maintain that plasma volume as, as much as possible over the long term. And there's been some debate about whether we have or you know, we do have internally stored sodium, particularly in the skin and a little bit in muscle as well. Uh, most of that work's happened in more the clinical space. Um, but what uh, has been sort of hypothesized but never really tested in a, an athletic context, whether uh, we actually release those sodium sources to compensate for that during exercise. Uh, can we do that in an acute setting like exercise? Um, we're, we're doing a, a five-hour running study at the moment in a hot environment at Monash and it is one of the things that we want to have a look at with that is um, giving people sodium or not, can we see any evidence that sodium is actually being released to compensate for the lack of sodium in the placebo group, but um, hopefully we'll have that finished toward the end of this year. And the, the, I mean, this, again, this could be a podcast in itself. Uh, well, it was with Lewis James, but you rightly said that, that there was a certain context there, which might, have been up to say a marathon, but not necessarily mm. in hot environments, certainly not for ultra endurance. And it, you know, I, when I, I think again in my own practice, particularly in field settings like at the World Cup, for example, where you, you know, it's really hard to assess an individual's hydration status because as you say in the paper, you know, there, there, there is no single marker that's considered definitive. So how do you do that on the fly, you know, and yes, uh, again, I think it might even be the same paper. It was certainly a GSSI publication that, you know, there's that triangulation of uh, urine osmolality, uh, body weight, and thirst. And of course, there's other, you know, there's the before and after, you know, what, you know, weight. Um, make sure you weigh the, you know, the the the, the sweat saturated, you know, kit. Um, but what about, you know, they might have drunk something, but but spat it out. They might have you know, throwing the bottle on the, like, it's really hard to measure and equate this, but 
without getting overly complicated and without turning this into a, a marathon of a, a podcast, just just quickly because that is important. Um, what, what what are your thoughts on baselining that um, in the field in particular? Yeah, so I mean, I guess there's two. I, I sort of think of this as two aspects of hydration assessment. One is what is your hydration status at a given point in time? So the here and now. And then the second part is how is that changing over time? So the model you described just then with, you know, the weight, the urine colour and the thirst is more that fixed point. Um, and that's probably valid under resting conditions um, and where things are not dynamically changing like heat acclimation, for example, because uh, you're going to get big changes in, for example, plasma volume as a, an adaptive response to heat acclimation and then for you reduce your urine output, it becomes more concentrated and people go, oh my God, I'm dehydrated. Well, actually, you're becoming more hydrated. Um, so yeah, under resting conditions that are nothing out of the ordinary, that model is probably a good practical one for assessing, am I hydrated at this point in time? And then for looking at the changes in hydration status over time, uh, we're looking at, you know, obviously body weight change, compensated for you know food and fluid intake and um or maybe not fluid intake if you're just wanting to look at the overall balance um and also you know urine and fecal output if that's relevant to, to what the person's doing um and in the ultra stuff even having to go further than that and calculating for you know glycogen loss and, and oxidation of substrate and things like that may maybe play a role as well but for, for most people that's not such an issue um, and I guess what you're measuring when you're looking at change in body mass is really the change in total body water. But it doesn't tell you about, you know, the where that water is in which compartments, you know, whether it's extracellular, whether it's intracellular, and really there's no way of doing that short of, um, you know, taking a blood sample and um, obviously you're not going to do that out in the field and you're not even going to measure body mass, you know, halfway through a race, you're not going to stop and weigh yourself. So um, really none of these strategies are going to be things that you can adjust your you know your fluid intake strategy on the fly with any of those strategies so really the only thing feedback that you're really going to have from that perspective is thirst uh, as a, a mechanism to give us at least some feedback about what's happening in the body yeah i oh there's so much here um we could go on for uh, for ages i'm sure um I, I need to move forwards on this a bit because I think I think that I'm gonna have to do another podcast I keep coming up with podcasts here that's the way this goes um um in terms of strategies for fluid and electrolyte intake now th this is complicated because we could be very reductionist about this and just talk about um you know uh, the water aspect uh, for hydration electrolytes and so on but 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 fluid is not just for that it is also for fueling purposes potentially and we have to be mindful yeah. of that um but for want of understanding this we do need to separate this out a little bit um, maybe if you could walk us now into, you know, the, the, the sort of the strategic side of this, um, you know, the what and the why, um, yeah. good place to go now. Yeah. And I think there's the, the scientific part of this and then there's the logistical and the practical part of this. And both of those kind of have to come together when you're doing this sort of planning. So I think the first thing is to have at least some idea of what your expected fluid losses are going to be. As we said, it's not going to be perfect, but it gives us a ballpark to start off with. and then. Uh, and Greg Cox talked about this at the conference and, and it's in the paper, we talk about fluid availability and opportunities to drink. So, you know, you can say drink to thirst, that's your strategy and, and that might be appropriate in some cases, it's not. Um, but if you take off without enough fluid and you're between checkpoints, say in a trail running event or something like that, 
and you run out of fluid and then you're thirsty, well, drink the thirst isn't gonna help you if you haven't got any fluid to drink. So having some sort of strategy around fluid availability is key here to know, this is how much fluid I think I might need. I need to make sure I have access to that amount of fluid. And in some events, you've got access to almost unlimited fluid. In some events, you really have to plan for that quite carefully. Um, and then the second part is opportunities to drink. So if you're, for example, a Olympic cross-country mountain biker, you can't just take your hands off the handlebars to grab a drink when you're riding over rocks and logs and things like that. So um, opportunities to drink may be limited in that kind of environment. Uh, or if you're in a pro cyclic event and there's big crosswinds and it's all lined out in the gutter, you know, you're hanging on for dear life at the back of that line of riders. You're not just going to reach down for a drink. So opportunities can be different. And, you know, in a marathon, where are the aid stations placed? Things like that. So um, these are the sort of things from the logistical point of view you need to consider, even if you know, quote unquote, what your number is in terms of how much fluid you need. It's then how am I going to make sure I have access to that if I need it? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, look, you know, we, you know, for want of not turning this into the longest podcast in the world, um, there are obviously I've done lots of podcasts that relate to this and I'll tie that in, but I don't want to lose sight of the reason why this is important. And, and some of the, you know, some of the finer points you can read from the paper. So we'll definitely have people read the paper, but um, Ollie, just to bring you back sure. on this topic, the, the reason why this is more than just a marginal issue, you know, the, the, the relevance from a physiological perspective of, of um, you know, getting hydration right. I don't know if this is an area that you want to get into, but, you know, is there anything you wanted to quickly discuss? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm just thinking, you know, listening to, 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 to uh, what Alan's saying there is, you know, it, it's, it's, I think it's also important to kind of, keep in mind that you don't need to get it precisely right. So it's not as though we observe decrements in human health or performance once you, you, know, you lose 1% of your total body mass dehydration. So you know, we, we do have these, this, this margin for error, if you will, and we can cope with moderate levels of dehydration pretty well. Also depends how that, that uh, dehydration occurs, whether it's intracellular dehydration, which would occur for example, from, from sweating or more extracellular dehydration, which is from you know, urine losses or if you've got the runs or something like that. So, um, and then the, the impact of those different types of dehydration as well is different from a thermoregulatory point of view. So we know that the main mechanism whereby we uh, affect sweating through dehydration is, is, um, is when we see differences in, in, in osmolality. So um, when we have, uh, when we lose um, uh, body water through sweating that will change osmolality to the extent that osmoreceptors then independently influence our capacity to sweat. On the other hand, if it's a more an extracellular dehydration situation, then that really has quite profound influences on our cardiovascular system. So our ability to then, you know, you've got a smaller blood volume, so you've got small, uh, uh, um, less blood to go around when you're doing this redistribution, which could have performance issues, but it could also have thermoregulatory issues as well. So um, I think it's, um, you know, it's important for different reasons, depending on the mechanism of, of, of dehydration. But we do know that certainly from um, the levels of dehydration that we see from sweating is that, you know, we can tolerate at least one or 2% uh, 
uh, reductions in total body mass, which is, you know, not, not, a, not a trivial amount. If you have 70 kilos, that's just 1.4 kilograms of total body mass that you can lose through dehydration uh, without replacing it. Um, it's, you can kind of tolerate that without seeing these really bad reductions in, in, uh, in, in performance. And certainly from a thermoregulatory point of view, um, you, know, you, need to, you, need to, you need to be pre-dehydrated to the extent that it becomes a really, really problematic. Yeah, you just, actually, you just said something I, I think that is relevant is, you know, not just starting off appropriately hydrated, obviously, but the rate of fluid loss relative to your ability to take it in. And obviously, the, the, longer, the longer you're out in this hot environment, you know, the bigger the problem comes. So then there's sort of a, 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 a sort of a fluid or fluid intake hydration pacing strategy you know, is this, is, you know, what's the relevance of that? Yeah. yeah I, I, I mean, I think, that okay, oh, sorry, go on, go no, no, I, I just, um, uh, I was just saying, yeah, it's really just kind of a cumulative thing, right? So over shorter, over the sh shorter time span, that rate of difference is, uh, is not really problematic, but if it's more prolonged, that like an error under the curve, you get that progressive level of dehydration and that's when it becomes problematic. But go ahead, Alan. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say uh, pretty much the same thing. I talked about this at the conference with a little graph. You know, if you replace, let's say, 50% of your, your fluid loss, as an example, you know, after two hours, that'll be a certain percentage of body mass loss. But after 10 hours, that'll be a much greater percentage body mass loss. And whether thirst kicks in and then, you know, you start off drinking 50% of your losses, but then over time it goes up to 60, 70, 80, 90% of your losses, no one's ever really looked at that. Um, that really requires someone to go to an ultra endurance event and really finally study someone's fluid intake and, and losses. And, you know, we've, we've got, you know, pre and post race body mass. There's plenty of those kind of studies out there. Uh, but I think we're now getting beyond the stage of just turning up to a race with a clipboard, a pen and a set of scales. Uh, we actually need to go there and, and collect more detailed data to be able to inform what's going on in the real world a bit better than that now. And you know, there is technology now. We've got water bottles that have yeah. little little spinny things in the tops and you can measure and, and actually electronically record the data on how much people are drinking and that kind of thing now. So I think the technology is available to do it, but it, it requires a much bigger effort um, and you know, probably a bigger research team. And a very um, fit research team, Alan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're really Chasing adding bottles the challenges. And aid stations and, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A PhD is not that easy to get, as you well know. And uh, now you're adding in the fact you might have to run alongside these guys. Um, mm. um, just quickly staying on that, just there was an area that, I, that occurred to me because we're talking about, well, we, we, we are talking a lot about endurance, ultra endurance, um, sort of time, time in the field, um, but also with heat. Both of these will have an impact on the perception of thirst. Um, which is a, you know, is a strategy that's used by lots of people. Is there anything there that's worth, worth bearing in mind? Um, yeah, well, we, we talk about in the paper, um, when doing a fluid balance assessment, it's a really good idea to not just capture body mass and that change and how much someone drinks, but also their perception of thirst uh, and also their gastrointestinal tolerance to fluids. Because when you then have that fluid balance data and you might say, oh, someone lost, you know, 900 mils an hour, whatever it was, but they only replaced 400 mils an hour and you go, oh, they're not drinking enough. But you don't know why. You have no idea why they're not drinking enough. And if you have that additional data, you might go, oh, because they don't have the gut tolerance for that volume of fluid that they need to drink. So we need to work on the gut tolerance. That's the problem. 
Or you might look at it and go, well, their gut tolerance is not a problem. Uh, but they just didn't feel thirsty. So maybe for them, that thirst mechanism is not um, appropriately matching that situation. So by having that additional data, you can get a bit of a, a sense of, of those kinds of things. Um, is, sorry, is that what you meant? Lauren? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did. Yeah, these are just, I, you know, I think we need to think outside the box a bit on this. And um, there's so much to consider. You know, we talked earlier about the bigger picture. I mean, this is a huge picture that, that you know, that, that, that needs consideration. And I'm, I'm also thinking about in terms of sort of strategies that involves nutritional strategies um, to influence adaptations to those that are training and preparing for these kinds of events that might occur in hot environments. They're, you know, they're also looking at strategies to influence fueling, not just hydration. And, mm. you know, there's a, yes, you're going to combine them, but also one might affect the other. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that in this context? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely an important one. Um, and particularly, I guess, in the, the context of carbohydrate intake, because if you uh, plan, for example, to get the majority of your carbohydrate from the fluids that you're drinking um, and you have a, a strategy to get X number of grams per hour or whatever it is of carbohydrate, um, you're assuming that you're going to get that amount of fluid in. And if you end up very thirsty and you over drink, you may end up over consuming carbohydrate and risking some gastrointestinal issues. Or if it tends to be a much cooler day and you're not thirsty, then you end up getting less carbohydrate than what you planned. So I think there needs to be a, a bit of a strategy there in terms of ensuring that whatever your fluid intake strategy is, and however that might be flexible up and down on the day, doesn't impede, as you said, you know, your carbohydrate intake strategy and, and how that is fueling your exercise as well. Uh, and that may may or may not involve then having more, you know, sort of gels and solid foods and stuff as your carbohydrate source. Or it might be, as a lot of practitioners I think already do, is to say, okay, I'm going to have a, a base amount of fluid, which I know is less than what I'm going to need. That's where I'm going to get carbohydrate from. And then the additional fluid above that doesn't contain carbohydrate. And I can adjust that up and down flexibly according to my need on the day. And, though, and again, just to delve a bit further into this, because carbohydrate, from my understanding, um, does impact hydration status in itself. Um, you know, you have carbohydrate in cells and tissues that in itself increases the amount of fluid that's going to be held in those cells and tissues is one angle. Um, but also, what about the consequences of um, those that are trying to avoid carbohydrates? Um, whether the, you know, particularly in the, you know, I've done podcasts and as you know, I've contributed to a, a paper on this as well, but ultra endurance events is, you know, it's become extremely tempting, not necessarily for the right reasons, but it's become very tempting for people to engage in training and competition in very low or, um, you know, limited states of carbohydrate availability or complete carb, you know, keto adaptation and all that stuff. Mm. you know and it's a sort of you can do that but should you um and should you as it relates to how your body's going to deal with hot environments is my question to you what are your thoughts on that mm. so there's probably two parts to this that, that i can see one is the actual absorption of fluid because glucose is involved in you know that that transport of, of water um, from the intestinal tract um but you know sodium is involved in that as well and i don't think you know you don't need huge amounts of carbohydrate to achieve that the other aspect of that is is glycogen and the, the fluid retention that goes along with that 
uh, in the, the intracellular space. Uh, and there's been, a, I think, a little back and forward sort of academically of whether that glycogen contributes to fluid per se, whether that fluid magically is liberated or appears um, as you then utilise that glycogen. And you know, I think you know, there's arguments for and against that, so I don't have a strong opinion you know, one way or the other. Uh, but certainly that, you know, increasing glycogen will increase your, your total body water. Um, uh, you know, and as Ollie was talking about before with the, you know, the amount of, tissue you have and then the amount of heat generation it takes to heat that tissue. Uh, obviously having that greater amount of water in your body is going to take a longer time or greater amount of heat production to, to heat it up. I mean, I guess it's like boiling a kettle. If it's only a quarter full, it boils really quickly. If you have a full kettle, it's going to take much longer to boil. Obviously, you know, the difference here aren't that dramatic, but there will be, there will be some difference in that as well. So, um, thank you for that. So Ollie, um, you know, there are other benefits to uh, or other strategies um, that involve helping the body deal with hot environments using, you know, drinks and, and so on, which might might not necessarily be for the purposes of uh, literal hydration or, or, you know, the fueling we've just been talking about. It might be about, you know, impacting perception of heat. So mm -hmm. whether that's consuming a cold drink, um, or and the paper goes into there are other, you know, uh, like menthol and so on. But the cold slushies and so on. I think that's a fascinating area. You know what? what, what yeah. you know, what is that, and, and why potentially do that? Well, I mean, it's 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 difficult to discern. To be to be honest, um, as I mentioned earlier on, is that uh, I think uh, I think it's pretty well defined now. Is that if you if you ingest an ice slushy drink. You, know, you are introducing this cold bolus to the inside of the, to the stomach, and it's very tempting to think that oh, that cools your core temperature down. But your stomach, what's in your stomach, doesn't represent what your core temperature is, right? It's a it's a very very different thing. So um, we know that from an exercise performance perspective, is that ice slushy drinks or cold water ingestion before uh, an activity um, is quite effective at dropping your core temperature beforehand. But what we do know is that the onset of your sweating and your th and your um, other thermoregulatory mechanisms like vasodilation are blunted because because you've reduced core temperature in the first place, and that's the, the signal that's driving those heat loss responses. When you start exercising, the rate of core temperature increase at the start of exercise will probably be a slightly higher because you're not losing heat to the environment at all. So you're keeping that sweating shut off for a little longer time. So eventually that it becomes a diminishing effect. So by the time you get into exercise, you might have that benefit of a slightly lower core temperature in the first place, but this rate of core temperature increase generally tends to be slightly steeper. So by the time you get into more prolonged levels of exercise, that effect of that ice slushy drink from the perspective of how hot you are actually disappears. Uh, we did, it, we did a, a, a review that was published in Sports Medicine back in 2018, and we did a, an assessment of all of the all the studies that looked at ice slushy ingestion or cold water ingestion during exercise, um, and also as a pre-cooling um, strategy, um, where everything else is fixed, so metabolic heat production is the same, et cetera, et cetera. What we found is that these types of strategies don't actually seem to generally keep you cooler during exercise, but from a performance perspective, there's good evidence that it does improve performance. So that what that tells you is that you've ma you're managing to manipulate some kind of sensory uh, input or, or, uh, or evaluation of your thermal state 
without actually altering the real thermal state of the body. Now, another way of doing that is with the application of things like menthol. Some, some people have done menthol application to the outside of the body. They, the way in which menthol works is that it acts on these um, uh, TRPM8 receptors that are responsible for cold sensation, and it drops the, the tissue temperature at which it triggers that cold sensation. So it's quite effective in making you feel cool when in fact you're not cooler. That could be beneficial in some cases, and there's some, some studies that have done uh, T-shirts that have had uh, menthol uh, sprayed into them or it's been applied to different parts of the body, particular areas that are quite thermosensitive. And in some cases, it's demonstrated that it works to improve performance. In other cases, it's the, the, the evidence not, is not quite as, um, as quite robust. Um, but I think there's some evidence to, to suggest that that could be beneficial. Uh, other people have done it with mouth rinses as well. So if you have a menthol mouth, mouth rinse, you have the same thermoreceptors that you have in the skin, same, these same peripheral thermoreceptors that are responsible for thermosensation, and you can trigger that by um, uh, rinsing it in the mouth as well. Um, so that's another way of making somebody feel cooler when they're not necessarily cooler. And, and there's reasonable evidence to suggest that can in some people um, improve performance. Brilliant. Um, so obviously there's a hierarchy of relevance here, isn't there, uh, with, with all of these things and, and look, we're going to have to draw this to an end, I think. Um, so I'll, I'll sort of end it both with a similar thing to both of you. Um, but, um, Alan, let's just bring this to you since we're talking about nutrition and, and hot environments, what, what are the, not just the, well, what are the key, the key things you want to sort of leave us with or summarize us with, uh, you know, along with your key sort of take home points. Obviously everyone needs to read this position stand. That's what it's there for. Um, but what are your key, your key points uh, that you want to leave us with? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of been the theme of this podcast really is that, that none of this is really uh, a fixed thing you can set in stone, whether it's, you know, what the temperature does to you from a thermal stress point of view or, you know, sweat rates or electrolyte losses, whatever it is. So um, flexibility, again, I keep coming back to it. I think is the, is the key in all of this. Um, hydration, you know, it's the biggest part of this paper, but it's probably also the biggest part from a nutrition and, and thermoregulation point of view. So that's not a surprise. And, you know, we talk in the paper about pre-exercise and, and post-exercise as well. We don't have time for that today, but um, that that's something else to consider. Mm. Um, and then there's you know, obviously the, the thermal perception thing. And then you know, we also talk in the paper about different athletic groups and some of the specific needs for junior athletes and, and para-sport athletes as well. But again, we won't get into that now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the big thing is there's is the hydration piece that we're talking about. It's going to have the, the far bigger effect, as Ollie said, compared to the you know, getting into the fancy bits with the menthols and the, the glycerols and the ice slurries and things like that. Um, if you get that hydration right, that's going to be the you know, biggest bang for buck, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And just to, you know, point out that, that I mean, there is a limit to what we can get into in a mm. podcast. And I think that my idea here is that these podcasts are additive to the paper. So yeah. read the paper. Yeah, <laughs> um, and there are other podcasts that, you know, that, that, that have been done and will be done that, that all relate to these, but that, that was awesome. Alan. thank you. Um, and Ollie, from a physio physiologist perspective, and I use the phrase of hierarchy of relevance, I mean, you know, feel free to, to chop and change that as you wish, but sort of the, the, sort of the key areas of, of relevance for you on this topic and the take-home messages that come from that. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think the thing is that based on what we've discussed today, the two take home messages that I think would uh, like to drive home is, is first this idea of, you know, what constitutes a hot environment. Um, it's not just the ambient temperature. Keep it in mind that that's in the shade that you need to take into account the other environmental parameters and also what the person's doing, what the person's wearing, and also the physiological state of the individual. Are we dealing with, uh, you know, a, a, a youth sport participant who's in, in a recreational setting, or are we dealing with Roger Federer at the Australian Open, for example? The, the level of strain that we would expect those two people to tolerate are going to be drastically different, not just because of their physiological straits, but also the stakes that, uh, that of, of the competition. So I think that's kind of important to, to take into account when we're determining what are the upper limits of what is what is what is too hot when it comes to um, sport and, and training, which is another important aspect, as Alan alluded to earlier on, in hot environments. And the other thing I think I'd probably uh, revisit here is just this idea of the, the often we can we uncouple the, the, what the, the sensory experience versus the physiological experience. And so the idea that uh, you can actually feel cooler in a particular situation, that's only because you're, you're stimulating those particular thin receptors that enable us to assess whether an environment is cool or not, or the body is cool or not. That might not necessarily be the case from an internal point of view. And ultimately, that is really, really important when it comes to the risk of heat-related illness, heat exhaustion, and ultimately heat stroke. Brilliant. Well done, guys. That is a, 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 a position stand of a podcast in itself. Um, and actually, uh, I'll put you both on the spot and say I'd love to have you both back on either individually or, or uh, combined to, to get, I, I really want to get into the hydration issue in more detail, particularly as it relates to things like ultra endurance events, Alan, and the whole physiology. I mean, we got into so many things. I'd love to delve into that. So maybe we'll, 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 we'll have, we'll have other uh, uh, follow-ons from, from this podcast, but we have to draw this to an end. Um, I think we've been talking for a, about an hour and a half at least. So that just shows you, doesn't it? Um, so in addition to reading the paper and I'll, as I said, we'll combine other resources I think are of relevance to this for our, for our listeners. Um, Alan, um, I know you're at Monash University, um, but people who want to, and, and you're also in private practice, but for people who want to follow you, uh, learn more from you, what's the, the quickest and simplest way of, of them doing that, like Twitter or, or website or whatever? Yeah, Twitter's probably the easiest. Um, so my personal one is uh, well, short for my private practice, which is Next Level Nutrition. So the Twitter handle is Next LVLNUT. Uh, or there's the, the Monash. Yeah, so the Monash one is Monash N-U-T-R-E-X-E-R. So Monash Nutrition and Exercise. Um, and that's where most of our, our papers and things um, tend to get disseminated through there. Yeah, brilliant. And, uh, and Ollie, what about yourself? Yeah, you so... No, Sorry, sorry. No. I know you've been escaping the UK for all these years, but we're going to find you on social media. <laughs> yeah, that's quite all right. Yeah, so uh, probably Twitter's the best place. So um, my own personal Twitter account where we tweet the latest papers that we publish from the yep. lab is at the underscore J-A-Y 13. And then you can also follow at the lab as well, the Thermal Ergonomics Laboratory, which is at Thermal Erg Lab. Absolutely. So those two, yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And of course, at both of your institutions, you're at University of Sydney and uh, Alan, you're at Monash University, both fantastic institutions. Uh, and if you find yourself in a, in a position of wanting to go study at those institutions, absolutely go for it. And I'm sure you guys can help point people in direction if they're looking for 
you know, PhDs, MSCs or, or whatever, um, you guys might, may be able to accommodate that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, brilliant. Well, look, thank you uh, both once again. And um, that drink brings us to the end of this, uh, this, this episode on nutrition and um, uh, 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 hot environments. I, of course, am uh, Laurent Bannock. I look forward to bringing another episode of We Do Science back to you all very soon. Do check us out at the Institute of Performance Nutrition. Um, our podcasts and our training and education, particularly our uh, advanced training program for practitioners in performance nutrition, our diploma there, which is online. Um, everything is at www.theiopn.com or social media channels at the IOPN. Thanks very much, and uh, we'll be back soon.